just wish that we could grab that whole thing over again and we could do it differently. You know what I'm talking about? I, I remember before I got saved now, people would say some, some snide stuff to me, you know. And boy, I'm telling you, it's, I mean, five minutes after it happened, I'm, I'm like, I'm all over that thing. I'm just like, oh man, I wish I could go back and do that because it, oh, I would say, you know, and you know, you always got that juicy little thing that, oh, if you would have just said that, man, that, oh, that would have been so, and you see, that was before we were saved though, right? Yeah, right. It, it, but now that you haven't, and, and I know we all, we wrestle with that. But now that we have been saved, I mean, how many times have you you've been in a situation where you've been talking with someone, and I mean, you didn't see it at that moment, but five minutes after it was all said and done, you look back and you said, oh my goodness, if I would have just said this, that man, there was a door of utterance in front of me right there, and oh my goodness, I wish I could come back and get that, and you, you worry that you may never get that chance again. And all I can tell you about, I won't tell you about, the things in, in the ministry where you, you do something and I'm telling you, you just play it back over in your mind and you think, oh man, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do that again. Because you know, so, sometimes after it's all said and done, you see things a whole lot clearer than you're seeing them at that moment. And, and what is just the coolest thing in the world to me about Revelation chapter 11 is there's two incredible guys that God used thousands of years ago in the past. A dude by the name of Moses and another one by the name of Elijah. And what was so interesting, if you go back and you look at the ministries that those two guys had, though they were used incredibly by God, and though the two of them together really form a composite of the Old Testament, Moses being the law and Elijah being the prophets. I mean, these guys, I mean, as far as the word of God is concerned, man, these guys are pretty much tops, but they both had something that was the same about their ministries, and that was they never really had the chance to finish. Moses was going to be the guy that was going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, and he came to the end of his life and he made a major mistake and, and God let him go up on the mountain and he said, I'm going to let you look, but you ain't going. My man Joshua was going to lead him. And oh my goodness, don't you know, as he's looking over that mountain, just checking that out, thinking, oh my goodness, man, I wish I could just get down there one time into that land. Oh my goodness, I wish I could get there. And here's Elijah, and man, he's a stud muffin there with the prophets of Baal and, you know, that whole deal, and he's calling down fire. And there, I mean, it, it's 850 to 1 odds. And the guy says, that, that doesn't matter, man. I mean, he's just busting that thing. The next day, this babe Jezebel is all ticked off about what took place there. And here goes Elijah with his tail between his legs, and he's, oh, God, I wish you'd just kill me. And God says, well, I won't kill you, but I'll take you. And he was out of there. And he never really got to finish. But check it out. In Revelation chapter 11, what we find out is God's going to let Moses and Elijah come back. And they're going to get the chance to finish. 
And you know what's so wild, man? Is they've had several thousand years to be thinking about this next time. Oh, I'm, check it out. Right now. Those dudes are in heaven going, come on with it, man. Just blow that thing. Come on, let's, let's go ahead and get started here. I mean, I'm promising you, they see it a whole lot clearer now. And when they come back, buddy, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a time, I, I'll tell you that. We, we saw, first of all, you see on your outline there, that these are the two witnesses. We're calling them the coming of the messengers. This is when they come back to this planet. We saw, first of all, the warrant assigned the witnesses. Jesus says in verse 3, I'll give power unto my two witnesses. And these two men are warranted for a particular assignment. They're going to come back to this planet and be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at the special place that's involved. And, of course, that's the city of, talk to me, Jerusalem, the specific period involved, do you already know it? You, you better. It's the second half of the tribulation, the second three and a half years, the second 1,260 days, or at the end of verse 2, it's spelled out for you, 42 months. So that's the specific period. And then we looked at the supernatural power that's involved, and this is what began to help us see who these men actually were as we compared Scripture with Scripture. We looked in verse 6 at the weapons allotted these witnesses. These guys, you see now, all, all through the years, guys, every time that Jesus has had a witness and he has stood and, and before people and he told them the truth, it, it has happened from the beginning of time. They have always been thumped by the devil and his crowd. And God has sat in heaven and he's watched that whole thing come down. But when these two guys come back, he says, there ain't going to be no thumping unless they're doing it. And these guys have got some incredible power that they have. And if anybody wants to mess with them, you can see what happens there in, in verse 6, uh, verse, verses 5 and 6. And then last week, we started looking at the war against the witnesses. So we've seen the warrant assigned the witnesses. We've seen the weapons allotted the witnesses. And then we began looking at the war against the witnesses and we spent the whole time talking about the person initiating this war that's letter a under roman numeral three there the person initiating the war now last week what we had to do in order to to really show you all of this we had to spend some time doing quite a bit of teaching as we went to a lot of different places and so i want to spend just a minute right now just trying to put it back in your mind who this person is that is actually initiating this war against these two witnesses and without all of the the teaching and the proof text and all of that I think it'll come together in your mind probably even better than it did last week but we saw in verse 7 that the person that is initiating this war against these two witnesses is none other than the beast verse 7 says and when they that's the two witnesses when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. And we went into the whole identity of, of the beast, comparing Scripture with Scripture and letting it form a composite for us of, of who and what the beast actually is. And we saw from Revelation 13 and verse 18, you may want to just jot just key phrases down next to the verses there on your study sheet to just 
put it together in your mind. But the first place we went was Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, and we saw that, first of all, this beast is a man. And according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, he is a very specific man. He is called, do you remember what it is? That man of sin. He's a man, but he's a very specific one. He is that man of sin in contrast to the Lord Jesus Christ who is that man of righteousness. And of course, the beast is many times in the Word of God even referred to specifically as the the Antichrist. He is that man of sin. Christ is that man of righteousness. But not only is he a man, and particularly that man of sin, we saw also that he is an angel. And and of course, that would be a, a fallen angel or a a devil in fact in revelation chapter 9 and verse 11 he's referred to there as the angel of a place that is called the bottomless pit and the bottomless pit is not your teenage son's appetite it's a literal place that's located in the hollowed out center of the earth which would mean that it would have sides but it would have no bottom And according to that same verse, Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11, it it tells us that this angel of the bottomless pit is referred to in the Hebrew tongue, Abaddon, and the Greek name, it says there in verse 11, is Apollyon. Both of those names mean destroyer or perdition. In fact, the word Apollyon that you see there in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11 is translated perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3 where it refers to the beast or the Antichrist by another very significant title and that title is the son of perdition. And what makes that title so significant, we saw last week, is that God very strategically left you with that verse. He only left you one other place in all of the Word of God where you can cross-reference that title, the son of perdition, And that's in John chapter 17 and verse 12, where it tells you who the son of perdition actually is. And who is it, y'all? It's Judas. Judas Iscariot. And I'm telling you, once you see that, then you start looking around at what the Bible has to say about him, and boy, all of a sudden, it starts coming together. Now listen very carefully. You look at Judas, and all of a sudden, all of these verses that we've been talking about here, they start coming together, because here is a guy who was obviously a man. But according to John chapter 6 and verse 70, 70, he was more than just a man. Do you remember what it says about him? He is a, say it, he's a devil. You see, it's just that for three and a half years, nobody knew it. Now, now, now think about that. Here is a man who is a devil who for three and a half years, nobody really knows that he is a devil. I mean, even remember when Jesus came down to the end of his ministry? He'd been ministering for three and a half years. And he, he's got the 12 around and he says, Now, fellas, let me, let me tell you something. One of y'all is going to betray me. And you know what the disciples are going? You know what they're saying? Wow. I wonder who that is. And there's nobody there that's got it figured out that it's going to be Judas. In fact, 
Jesus is, is talking to him, and he said, you know, they're all saying, which one is it? Hey, John, ask him which one it is. And he says, it's the one that I'm going to hand this piece of bread to. Okay, so he takes the piece of bread. Okay, he says, now, the one I'm talking about that's going to betray me, it's the one I hand the piece of bread to. And he puts it right in Judas's hand, and the disciples are still going, I wonder who he's talking about. Duh. I mean, how hard could this be, you know? But they still, they, they, they couldn't make the connection. But what the Bible says in John 13 and verse 27, is as soon as Jesus did that and gave him that stop, something incredible happened. Do you remember what it was? Satan entered him. Something that is not said of any other person in the entire Bible. Satan himself actually entered into Judas's body, and at that moment, Judas, the son of perdition, actually became Satan incarnate. Satan in a human body. And then we found that after Judas be betrayed Christ, he committed suicide, and in Acts chapter 1 and verse 25, the Bible tells us something else that is just absolutely monumental, and that is that when Judas died... He went to, can you say it with me, his own place. He went to his own place. And that place, of course, is none other than the bottomless pit. And, and what all of that comes together to mean is that after the rapture of the true believers in Jesus Christ, if you're a guest with us today, I always feel like I've got a, Frank talked about this at the beginning. The next moment, the, the next thing that we're looking for on God's, time clock is for the removal of all of the people on this planet who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. It's what is called the rapture of the church. It is when the true believers in Jesus Christ are bodily removed from this planet. And the Bible teaches that once that event happens, there is a man who is going to come on the scene. And he's going to have all kinds of power. He's going to have all kinds of answers. You're going to have all kinds of solutions. And with a, a number of peace treaties and, and arms control agreements, he will become, in this world, the benevolent world dictator. And though he's a man, he is also a what? He's also a devil. It's just that for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, Nobody will know it. But then, according to Revelation chapter 13, you, you're so close you can just cruise over there. Revelation 13, verses 3 to 5, what we find here is that at the midpoint of the tribulation period, he's going to receive a deadly head wound. This man, who is a devil, is going to receive a deadly head wound. He'll probably be shot in the head. He will apparently die. And at that point, the beast, Abaddon, Apollyon, the son of perdition, the angel of the bottomless pit, listen, he is going to ascend out of his own place and he will enter the body of the Antichrist and he will be, just like Judas was, he will be Satan incarnate and he will quote-unquote minister for the final three and a half years on this planet as Satan in human flesh 
in the same exact way that the true Christ ministered on this planet for three and a half years as God in human flesh. And it'll be at that point, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 says, he will go into the temple, he will proclaim that he is to be worshipped as God. And it is at the same point, okay, at the beginning of the second three and a half years of the tribulation, it's at that point when Satan enters, that man, that devil, the son of perdition, it is at that time that God warrants Moses and Elijah with the responsibility of going to Jerusalem and being his witnesses. It is for that same three and a half year period that they are contracted and they come back to this planet. And again, as we've seen over the last several weeks, these old boys are going to spend three and a half years every single day for 1260 days they're going to be out on the streets of Jerusalem man and they've got their time I mean this is it this is their day in the Sun man they're going to be able to finish their ministry and they're just out there waving that book man just busting the word and the whole world the whole world is going to know those guys because they're going to be on CNN and ABC and NBC and CBS every night man and you say where are you getting that uh, hang on I'll show you right from this book man I'm telling you you're gonna see it here in just a little bit and, and because they've got these certain weapons that we saw that were allotted to them by God for that entire 1260 days that God had contracted them as his witnesses there's not anything that anyone on this planet including the Antichrist himself can do to those guys for that entire 1260 days but when all of those days had gone by on that 1260th day when it arrived verse 7 says they finished their testimony they had done everything that God wanted them to do they said everything that God wanted them to say they had already won every person who was going to respond and at that point, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit makes war against them. And we've seen, of course, who that beast is. So that's the person initiating the war. Notice the second thing. Notice the purpose of this war. The purpose of this war. There are several things that the beast wants to accomplish through this war against these two men. First of all, the, the end of verse 7 says that he wants to overcome them. He wants to overcome them. Now, that, that word overcome there is translated in other places in your King James Bible. It's translated to conquer. It's translated to prevail. It's translated to get the victory. And you see, for 1,260 days, these two guys, they have conquered and they have prevailed. They've gotten the victory over anything and everything that has gotten in their way. Verse 5 told us that however anybody wanted to hurt them, that became the method for those people's very own execution. But now, the beast wants to get victory over them. He wants to prevail over them. He wants to overcome them, but that's not all. The end of verse 7 says that he also wants to kill them. You see, if it would just be a matter of, of him simply wanting to, to overcome them, then for 
crying out loud, man. Just, I mean, you know, lock them up, put them in prison, prison, put them in solitary confinement. You know, uh, you prevailed against them. Okay, cool. Lock them up. You've gotten the victory over them. That, that's wonderful. But you see, it's more than that. He, he wants to do more than that. The beast won't be satisfied until he kills them. Now, it, it doesn't tell us specifically here how it is that he actually kills them. But by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we find out in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, it tells us how people during the tribulation period are going to be put to death for the awful crime of being the witnesses of Jesus. And if you check it out, and you can do it right now, over in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, you, you know what the awful crime is for being a witness of Jesus during the tribulation period? You're beheaded. You have your head chopped off. So, most likely, that's the way these two witnesses of Jesus are killed. They, they have their heads chopped off. But now listen, the purpose of this war, it, it's even more than that. This beast, he wants to overcome them. But overcoming them isn't enough without killing them. But killing them isn't enough without disgracing them. He wants to disgrace them. Now, now check it out, y'all. For 1,260 days, man, these guys have been out there with that book, and they're just, they're busting it. They're just telling it exactly like it is for 42 solid months, for three and a half solid years, they're out there, and there's nobody that can do jack about it. I mean, they're just going for it. There have been a lot of people that have tried, and a lot of people have gone down the tubes doing the trying thing. Finally, the, the Antichrist comes out one day. They finish their testimony, and that's the only reason that he could do it. But he comes and he takes Moses and Elijah by the nap of the neck. <laughs> And he grabs these guys and he starts dragging them through the middle of the streets of Jerusalem. And he takes them and he throws them down. And he yanks out a sword, man. And he comes over to Moses and he's looking up at him and he just, wow! And his body goes limp and the head rolls off. And he comes back the other way, wow! With Elijah. And his body goes limp and the his head rolls to the ground. And now listen, the Antichrist is going to have done some unbelievable stuff in that seven-year period. And I mean, he's going to have dazzled the crowd. There's nothing going to make the people of this world more overjoyed than what they just saw him do. I mean, their head rolls to the ground. Their body is on the pavement. Still isn't enough. Verse 8 says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city. And drop down to the end of verse 9. And shall not suffer. He will not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. You see, that'd be too humane, y'all. That'd be too civil. Chopping off their heads somehow... It wasn't satisfying enough to see that happen. He still wanted to see him suffer. 
he, he still wanted to find a way to make a public spectacle of these guys. He still wanted to find a way because he's got that venom and that hatred inside of him and he wants to disgrace them. Now, folks, if you, if you go back and, and we, we've done this because we've studied this together. There's so many of you that weren't here when we went through the study of church history and you, you, don't, you don't know what we're talking about right now because you've never gone back in history and read it. I'm not dogging you because you haven't. But let me just tell you, what we're talking about here, that thing of... of killing God's people and somehow it just not it just not being uh, satisfying enough there's still something in you you know what it's been that way all down through the centuries folks Satan has got so much hatred for anybody who is a witness of Jesus anybody will take that book and won't compromise it for anything somebody will just take that book and no matter what the culture is saying, no matter how tough it gets, they'll just take that book and they'll just say, all I know is this, this book says this. And so if this book says this, I'm going to live and I'm going to die by this book. And some of them, through the years, millions of them had the opportunity to put their life on the line. And the, their accusers have said, oh, you're going to live and die by it? Well, we can help you with that. And they killed him. But even after they killed him, they just got a little bit of something left. In the 14th century, the issue in England was who's going to be in control? Is it going to be the king of England? Oh, I mean, obviously, he's in control, right? But the issue is, who's going to control? Is it going to be the king of England? Or is it going to be the Pope? The King of England at this time has a chaplain, a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe, a Bible-believing Christian, has got the, 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 the spiritual foresight to see that the only way that the nation of England can come out of the domination of the Roman Church was to get this book into the hands of of the common man. You, you see, folks, in the 14th century, there was not an English-speaking person on this planet who had ever read one word of the Word of God. They had never heard the Bible in their own language. They would hear men speak in Latin. They couldn't understand what they were saying, and so the, they told them, what they were saying, but what they were saying to him wasn't in this book. John Wycliffe says, we got to get the Bible in the English language. If this nation is going to survive, it's going to be because these people find out what God is really trying to say to them. And so what John Wycliffe did is he sat down and he began to translate the Word of God into the English language and once he had completed that task he organized a group of itinerant preachers called Lollards who would go out onto the streets to be witnesses of Jesus and they're out there giving them the book the true Word of God and said you know you've been hearing all along that they've been telling you this you know what that doesn't say that in this book 
What this book says is this. And you know what was happening? Man, people were getting saved like crazy. The Roman church absolutely hated it. But before they could do anything to our old boy John Wycliffe, John Wycliffe was up preaching the book on December 28, 18, or 1384, and he went paralyzed as he was preaching. Three days later, he was gone. It was 1384. He's dead. He's not going to say anything else, y'all. He's dead. In 1415, a council is held called the Council of Constance. And they're sitting around and they're trying to discuss just what it is that has caused the Roman church to lose its grip over the nation of England and other parts of Europe. And somebody says, well, you know, I know this. I know that John Huss is one of our biggest problems. And I say we kill the sucker. And they said, you know what, that's a good idea. And so they went and they killed John Huss. One old boy says, but you know what? This whole stinking thing started with that John Wycliffe guy. Somebody says, well, where is he? Let's kill him too. They said, brother, what's up with you, man? I mean, the dude's been dead for several decades. Well, where'd they bury him? Well, you know, it's, it's over there. Check it out. Forty-four years later, Forty-four years. In 1428, they go to John Wycliffe's grave with shovels. They dig down to the coffin. They open the man's box, and here is his skeleton in there. They yank his skeleton out. They carry it down to the riverbank, and they burn his bones. And they take his ashes and throw them out into the river. Oh, and don't you know John Wycliffe is going, oh, no, anything but this, you know? <laughs> what I'm trying to get you to see is, with the devil, it's never enough. It's not enough to overcome him. It's not enough to kill him. He's got to find a way to disgrace him. You see, that's exactly what we're talking about right here in the tribulation period. I mean, he's overcome them. He's already dragged them through the streets. He's already lopped off their heads. It's laying disconnected from their bodies, but that ain't enough. We're just going to let those stinking bodies start to literally stink. And that's sun in the city of Jerusalem, and, and we're going to put them on, on spectacle. The whole world to see. So... The person initiating the war against the witnesses is the beast. The purpose of this war is not just to overcome them, not just to kill them, but disgrace them. And then notice next the place of this war. The place of this war. Verse 8 says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also... Our Lord was crucified. Now, folks, there's a lot of cities in this world that could be called great. There are a lot of cities that could spiritually be likened to Sodom and Egypt. But there's only one place on this planet where our Lord was crucified. And, of course, that's the city of Jerusalem. 
And, and not only is that the place where the two witnesses carry out their ministry, it is also the place that they meet their martyrdom. It is that place that not is not only referred to in verse 8 as the great city, but if you look back at verse 2, you find that it is also referred to as the holy city. And now, now listen, what the Lord is letting us know here is that during the time of the great tribulation on this planet, the holy city will be so tread down and the people will have become so degenerate the people will have become so unholy that spiritually it's like Sodom and Egypt. Now folks, if you want to pull out two hell holes out of the Bible, Sodom and Egypt is a great place to start. The prevailing sin of Sodom, of course, was immorality. You can just jot down, we're not going to take the time to turn there, Isaiah chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. The prevailing sin of Sodom was immorality. The prevailing sin of Egypt was idolatry. The Lord's letting us know here, he says, if you want to know what the holy city is going to be like, he says it's going to be so unholy that it's going to be running rampant with immorality and idolatry. And, and folks, let me let you in on a little secret here. Those two sins are not only the prevailing sins in Jerusalem in the last days just prior to the second coming of Christ. Those two sins are the prevailing sins in the United States of America in the last days just prior to the rapture of the church. He's nailing it for you. You know where we live, y'all? Spiritually, we live in Sodom. We live in Egypt. In fact, those two sins that we're talking about right there may well be the very two reasons that you have such a hard time trying to locate the United States of America in Bible prophecy, specifically in the book of Revelation. Immorality. And of course, when we're talking immorality, we're talking about any type of sexual sin. You know what's so wild, guys? These sins that we're talking about here... Those are sins that lost people have always committed. What is wild is we're living in a time where people who claim to know Jesus Christ as their Savior live in immorality and live in idolatry. I don't want to trip you out, but I'll just bet you if God could put the scorecard on First Baptist Church, bet you'd find the prevailing sins in this church are immorality and idolatry. Where are you coming from, man? Immorality is any type of sexual sin, whether it be visual, something you look at, magazines, the internet, videos, or it may be actually something physical, some moral sin that you're actually physically involved in involved in, whether it be with yourself, a member of the opposite sex, a member of the same sex, and if you can go back and check out Leviticus chapter 20 like we did on Frank's message last Sunday night, you can, you can even find out that you might even 
being something more perverted than that. So it, it could be something visual. It might be something physical, where you're actually physically involved. It might be something mental, some moral sin, some sexual sin that just captures your thoughts on a daily basis. But immorality is one of the, the two prevailing sins, not only in Jerusalem before the second coming, but in America and right here. And then the other one, oh yeah, you say, well, yeah, I can see that immorality thing, but, you know, I mean, what's up with this, you know, you're talking about idolatry. I mean, what, what's, what's the deal with, with that? Well, if you go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, you know what it tells you? It, it defines what idolatry is. It tells you that covetousness is idolatry. Now listen, he doesn't say, now, now covetousness is like idolatry. He says covetousness which is idolatry. And covetousness, folks, is sim very simply the sin of wanting more. More than what God has provided, or more than what God has permitted. Two prevailing sins idolatry and immorality. And may I just remind you, even though Christians are involved in those sins, can I remind you of what the Apostle Paul said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9? Just listen to it. He says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. We may have a lot of people professing to be a Christian who are committing those kind of sins. God says, don't be deceived on it. It ain't going to happen. Sodom in, in Egypt. And God says that's the way that the holy city, that's what it's going to be like during the great tribulation. And notice the last thing that, that verse 8 throws in there about this place. It's the place where our Lord was crucified. Now check it out, y'all. Almost 2,000 years ago, the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem called for the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ as he came to bear witness on this planet. And you know what's going to happen during the tribulation? The inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem are going to call for the death of these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. And I want to take you back real quick to the book of Luke, chapter 9, for just a second, and show you something that's at least interesting to me. Luke, chapter 9. Now, several weeks ago, when we were identifying these two witnesses, we went to Matthew 17, and we saw that on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, where our Lord was re revealing to Peter, James, and John that glory that would be His when He comes at His second coming, and we saw that while our Lord was being transfigured, there were two guys that showed up. Who were they, y'all? Moses and Elijah. Okay, And Matthew chapter 17 and verse 3 says that as Peter, James, and John are watching this whole thing come down, that they're seeing Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And wouldn't you give money to know what they would have been talking about? How much would you give? Huh? Because whatever you give it to me, because I'm getting ready to tell you what it was. Okay? And it's right here, man. It's right here in Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is the account of the same event. And, and he, he tells us what they were talking about. Verse, in chapter 9, verse 30 says, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, or Elijah. Again, that's the Greek rendering of the word Elijah, Elias. They're, they're talking. Verse 31, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, that is the decease of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he should accomplish, look at that, that place there, at Jerusalem. Now, I want you to just, just, just think with me, okay? Here they are. This is the preview of the second coming of Christ. We, we see that very clearly in Matthew chapter 16, the last two verses, moving into the chapter 17. This is the preview of the second coming of Christ. Jesus has transfigured himself. He has transformed the figure of his body to reveal the glory that will be his when he comes back to this planet at his second coming. And strangely enough, guess who's on the scene to witness the thing? Moses and Elijah and they're talking about Jesus dying in this place of Jerusalem. Now, I, I, I just want to plant this thought in your head, and, and this, is, this is speculation, so, so don't, don't freak out or anything like that, but I just want you to just consider something with me. This seems to me to be a great place for Jesus to show the glory that's going to be his at his second coming. And here comes Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about him dying, and Jesus is filling them in on what this is all about. And I'll just bet you that this is the place where Moses and Elijah find out. Now, just prior to my second coming, you two guys are coming back. And let me tell you something. When you come back, boy, give them the devil. I bet you it was here. And he comes to the whole deal, and they're talking about him dying in Jerusalem. And I'll just bet you, Jesus says to him, and you guys will get that same privilege. You guys are going to get to die in the streets of Jerusalem just like I will. And I'll bet you, as they're talking on this occasion, I bet you this is where they're finding out about this, this, this whole deal, about what's getting ready to happen in that place in Jerusalem something that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's, where, it's where he ended his ministry, and it's where these guys are going to end their ministry as well. That's the place of this work. Now, now, you know what? If you don't buy that, can that. Okay? Grab all the other stuff, because that's not me. That's, that's the book. Okay? I'm speculating there. Okay? Then notice next the publicity of this war. The publicity of this war and first of all I want you to see this it'll be shown to the world it'll be shown to the world this is what I was talking about earlier the first part of verse 8 says and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city and, and drop down to verse 9 and they now watch this now and they of the people 
and kindreds and tongues and nations, virtually every person in the world shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. Now, folks, how in the world is that going to happen? And you see, this is one of the key verses that through the centuries have caused people to want to say that the book of Revelation is just nothing but a bunch of a hogwash. And, you know, you really can't take the, the book of Revelation literally, and nobody can really understand it. And one of the key places they want to take you is this verse right here. In fact, one of the, the, the commentators from a hundred years ago said this, and I, and I quote, How can all the people in the world possibly look at the bodies of these three men lying in Jerusalem. Because you see, even a hundred years ago, it would have been more than a three and a half day journey from Babylon to get to the city of Jerusalem. It, and they're only going to be in the street for three and a half days total. So how in the world are people from every tongue and kindred and people and nation, how are the, how's the whole world going to witness this event. And you know what's wild, guys? A hundred years ago, there was no possible way for verse 9 to be fulfilled. Check it out. Fifty years ago, there was no possible way for this verse to be fulfilled. Even thirty years ago. But because of satellite communications, you know, we're all sitting here today having no problem whatsoever understanding that the whole world will be watching the same exact event that is going on at one particular place on this planet, and everybody in the world will all be seeing it all at the same time. That's no problem for us because, you know what, a couple of years ago, we, along with the whole rest of the world, sat in our living room and watched a war going on live at the same time every person on this planet was watching the same exact war. And I want you to check it out. Now, let, let your mind just kind of feast on this for a second. 2,000 years ago, before anybody knew anything about telecommunications and satellites and all of that, God said, these guys are going to be killed in the streets of Jerusalem. And they're going to lay there for a total of three and a half days. And for three and a half days, the whole world is going to watch it. They're going to watch them laying there. And, and you know what? If you want to know how big a news this is going to be, what verse 9 seems to be letting us know is that this is going to be the top story for three and a half days. I mean, if the people of the planet are going to watch it for three and a half days, it's going to have to be visible to them for three and a half days. Remember when Kennedy got shot? I mean, man, oh man, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't watch to tell the truth or anything else, man. I mean, you had to, you had to watch that deal. And you know what? God's letting you know here, when this thing comes down, it's going to be so big that, man... Everyone is going to be just glued to this whole event. And verse 10 seems to be letting us know that the people ain't going to be getting sick of seeing it or hearing it either. Because not only will it be shown to the world, it will also be shared by the world. It will be shared by the world. Verse 10 says, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them. 
that dwell on the earth. And it's interesting. God calls their witness a testimony in verse 7. The world, in verse 10, calls it a torment. And John lets us know here that the world is going to be so absolutely stoked that their tormentors are finally dead and they finally got these chumps out of their hair. He says that what happens is it turns into just a, a spontaneous holiday. And, and the deal is, I mean, though, though it doesn't specifically say what time of year it is, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to find out that it's the, tis the season to be merry and tis the season to be exchanging gifts. And since nobody in the tribulation period is going to be commemorating the birth of the Messiah, hey, we need a reason to celebrate, man. Hey, we got this time off anyway. Hey, and these suckers are dead, man. Come on over. We're going to have a big time. And people are coming over each other's house and... And, and, and they're exchanging gifts, and, and as they come into the house, man, the big screen TV's up there, and they got the witnesses lying in the street, man. I mean, and they're just showing it from every conceivable angle, and it's yucky, and it's gory, and all of that stuff. And people are going to be coming into the house, man, and they're going to be laughing. And you know how when tragedy strikes like that, you know how the jokes start going, right? All over the world. I mean, it's just... And man, they're coming in. And, hey, did you hear the one about Moses and Elijah? And you know, they're just, they're coming in the house and they're slamming brewskis and they're eating snacks. And they're, they're just, I mean, everybody's having a big time gloating over the fact that these two guys are finally dead. And then all of a sudden, something happens. God says, That's enough. That's enough. And this is Roman number four on your outline. The wrath avenging the witnesses. We've seen the warrant assigned the witnesses, the weapons allotted the witnesses, the war against the witnesses, and now the wrath avenging the witnesses. For three and a half days, guys, 84 solid hours, the TV's have been glued on these two decapitated men. And the world's just been having one continuous party over them. I mean, they just can't get enough of it, man. When all of a sudden, these two witnesses have a triumphant resurrection. A triumphant resurrection. Verse 11 says, And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood upon their feet. And as you might can imagine, great fear fell upon all them which saw. Job chapter 20 and verse 5 says, The triumphing of the wicked is short. And in this case, three and a half days. And for three and a half days, man, and they're just, oh man, I mean, they're just the whole world having a big time because these guys are laying headless in the streets and they're dancing and they're making merry and they're giving gifts and they're doing all of that. And buddy, they thought they were tormented before. Just wait till they see the decapitated heads of these guys pop back on their body. <laughs> and that, that bloated, stiff body, 
all of a sudden, pops up. And it's, I mean, it's, it's limber. You know? I mean, just a second ago, they're looking at that thing, and it's all, you know, swole up and, you know, like that. That head pops on. That body comes back to normality. The color rises, and it comes back in their cheeks, and they rise to their feet. And, I mean, you talk about freaked out. I mean, they're in the houses, you know, they're doing all the jam and stuff. They're checking out the TV. And then all of a sudden, man, bam, it happens. And every, I mean, people are screaming, watching TV. Oh, and uh, there's thousands of people that are right there in the city of Jerusalem. And I mean, they just, they just jamming, man. And all of a sudden, this thing happens. And everybody's just absolutely freaked. Here's the announcer. I mean... They can't get a word out. They're trying to tell everybody what's going on. And so since they can't get anything out, the camera just zooms in on these guys. And just about that time, the whole world is going to hear something they never heard before. They're going to hear the audible voice of God live on CNN, ABC, CBS, CBN. As next, the witnesses have triumphant rapture verse 12 says and they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them I don't know how to do it y'all come up hither and I mean the whole world's watching TV you know I mean they're freaked they've just seen those heads pop on and these guys are standing up walking around and then all of a sudden man they hear this voice Come up hither. Thank you. Little special effects there. <laughs> and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies beheld them. I mean, here's the whole world watching this thing. And everybody's just glued to the TV, just waiting to see what's going to happen next. These guys, the head pops on. They pop up, you know, the Antichrist and all of his chief advisors, you know, they, they've been right there at the streets of Jerusalem just, you know, working that thing, you know, all celebrating with all of them. And, you know, so these guys pop back up to their feet and immediately the Antichrist pulls these guys together and says, what, what are we going to do, man? And he's got all the, the, the boys. And one guy said, well, I'll tell you what I think we ought to do. I think we ought to lock them up. The guy says, you're crazy, man. I, I think we ought to, I think we ought to sh- shoot them up. That guy said, no, man, I think we ought to blow them up. No, man, we ought to chop them up. But nobody did nothing because God took them up. Before they could do anything, Jesus took them up. And I'm telling you, if decaying, decapitated bodies coming back to life wasn't freaky enough, all of a sudden, here comes this cloud, along with this, this freaky voice from heaven... Moses and Elijah step up into the cloud as, as if it were a spaceship or something. And the people who five minutes before were just laughing it up and boozing it up stand speechless all over the world watching what they cannot even believe is happening. And the thing that I know must be going to be freaky to them 
is not only do they recognize that something freaky is happening right now, but this must mean that something even freakier is going to happen. And note that, that this isn't a rapture that's like the rapture of, uh, of the church. When the church is raptured, when the church is raptured, what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and nobody's going to see anything. I mean, one minute, we'll be here. And next minute, I mean, nobody will see a thing. But the rapture of, of these tribulation saints is a different kind of rapture. It is visible. The end of verse 12 says, And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. They watched this, this whole thing. And, and remember, not just the people that are right there in Jerusalem, but most of the world is watching this thing via satellite. And what we find here is that the rapture of these tribulation saints is just like what happened in Acts chapter 1 when the body of our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven because Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 says that the people there on that hillside or that, 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 that mount, listen, they beheld as he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And you remember what the, the two angels said when they came down and, and talked to the disciples? They said, hey, fellas, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye, what? As ye have seen him go. They watched that whole deal as the cloud came down, Jesus stepped on the cloud, and they watched as he was taken to heaven, and the whole world is going to watch. The same exact thing happened again. But this time, Moses and Elijah rise from the dead. God speaks with a voice, the cloud comes down, they step onto it, and they behold as Moses and Elijah are taken up into heaven. But not, not only do they have a triumphant resurrection and a triumphant rapture, they also have a triumphant revenge. I mean, God has watched as the, His two witnesses were beheaded. He's watched their bodies, along with the rest of the world, lie in the streets and not even granted the decency of a burial. God has sat in heaven and he's watched the parties that their deaths had prompted. And he's listened to all the cute little jokes. He's listened to all the wisecracks. He's watched all the high fives and he watched all the dancing and all the parties and all the gifts that have been given. He's heard all the praise given to the beast because he finally shut these guys up. And after 84 hours of listening to all of that and seeing all of that stuff go on on the earth, God says, okay, that's it. So he miraculously resurrects them, and before anything can be done to them, he raptures them, and verse 13 says, and the same hour, and the same hour, I, I mean, all of this, this stuff that we're talking about here, God's wanting you to know, now all of this happens just within a short little period of time, it just Bang, bang, bang. One thing right after another so that the whole world connects every single one of these events together. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake. Now, a great earthquake, by man's definition, is anything that's 8.0 on the Richter scale and above as 
my memory serves me. And there's going to be one whale of an earthquake that's going to take place while this whole, I mean, it, it, it all just, bam, they resurrect. As soon as that happens, bam, the voice. As soon as that happens, the cloud. They start going up. And as soon as they're going up, this, this great earthquake. And you know, you just you go back in your mind. You, you remember what happened when Jesus was being crucified on this planet? It was a great earthquake. Remember what happened at the resurrection? It was a great earthquake. Remember what happened when Paul and Silas, they're in Acts chapter 16, they're in that jail in Philippi, getting their brains beat out. You remember what happened? Great earthquake. God has a way of just throwing earthquakes wherever he deems necessary. And he, he deems it necessary here. There was a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And of course, that's Jerusalem. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand and it's my bet that it was seven thousand people who were right there in the city streets of Jerusalem right there where those dead bodies were again speculation but if you're gonna take seven thousand out might as well be them you know and God takes revenge because of his two witnesses and watch the result in verse 13 and the remnant and I don't believe that this is in reference to the, the believing remnant who were in the city of Jerusalem who had, you know, I'm, I mean, if you look at how they respond, I mean, they, they respond, these, this remnant, they respond in fear. And I don't think that that's the way that the believing remnant is going to respond when they see all this happen. And I think they're going to be responding with rejoicing, don't you? I, I believe the remnant here are all the people in Jerusalem who weren't killed by the earthquake. And it says they are affrighted. They're totally freaked. And watch this. And gave glory to the God of heaven. That is, they attributed the source of all of these things that they were seeing to the one true God, the God of heaven. But now please don't, don't read that little, little phrase there, they gave glory to God, as, and, and, and they got saved. This is kind of like what happens in, in Luke chapter 5. And let me ask you to go back there, if you would. Luke chapter 5. Now, in Luke chapter And if you look in verse 17 of Luke chapter 5, what you find is that all the, the Pharisees and the, the doctors of the law, all of the, the Bible scholars, if you will, they've gathered together in this room to hear Jesus teach. And now, just like always, these guys are there not because they're wanting to learn things about the Word of God. What they're wanting to do is, is trip Jesus up. They've got no use for him whatsoever. They want to hear him teach so that they can take him to task. And here is this room absolutely packed. And what you find in the story is that there's four guys that have got a, a, a sick friend who's uh, he's paralyzed. And, and they, they want to bring, they hear Jesus is, you know, able to heal and all that. So they bring the, the guy to, you know, so that Jesus can heal him. And they get to the back doors and they find out this place is wall-to-wall -wall people. You cannot get in. And so they get up on the roof and they get up, up there and they remove part of the roof and drop this guy down to where Jesus was and puts him right in front of him. 
And you see, all this is just part of the plan of God because God wants to, wants to do something with these doctors of the law and these, these scribes and, and Pharisees. And so they put him down here, and Jesus knows the dude's paralyzed, and so you know what he says to him? He says, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And the Pharisees are wigged because they know that only God can forgive sin. They're picked. And so they're, they're asking him about this whole deal. And then Jesus does what they brought him in to do. Jesus healed him. And I want you to watch the response of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the doctors of the law. Verse 26. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear. And you know what happened to them? They got scared. But they didn't get saved. They were all amazed at what they had seen. But they didn't apply it to their own need. And all they acknowledged God's power. But they did not acknowledge his lordship in their lives. And now, now, don't, don't, don't turn back there. Just, just listen right now. What we're seeing in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 13, it's the same exact thing. Everybody that's there in the city of Jerusalem that didn't die, they see all of this stuff. And folks, I mean, come on. If you're going to be there, you know what? You're going to be scared. And that's what the Bible says. The people there are going to be scared. They're going to be affrighted. And as a result of seeing all this stuff, they're going to acknowledge the power of the one true God at work around them. But they won't allow the power of God to work in them. You say, well, I, I, man, whew, I don't know how that could be. I don't know how people could could watch all of that stuff and see all that stuff and, and that could be their response. Just I mean, they just get scared? They, and, and they acknowledge that God's at work? Oh, no, I, they, that, that couldn't be. Folks, let me tell you. It can be. Because we see it, we see it here really just about every single week. For the last 62 weeks, we've been, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. People just like yourself come into this room and go, Whoa, that book is absolutely amazing. And people say, whoa, man, this, this really must be the word of God. And they acknowledge his power. And I'm telling you, week after week, not, not because of me, but because of what this book is saying, it, it scares people to death. But they walk out of this room and refuse to humble themselves. They refuse to acknowledge their sinfulness. They refuse to acknowledge Christ's Lordship. While they believe every single word that they heard from the Word of God. They believe it's all going to happen. And oh my goodness, they're scared to death. 
But there's a big difference. Being scared by all of it. And getting saved by it. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ wants your response to be today. We've seen some freaky stuff here. And I promise you, if you live through it, rejecting you know Jesus Christ now, and you go through this period of time, and you happen to be one of the folks watching as this whole thing comes down via satellite, you're, you're going to be freaked. And you know what God's doing? Is He's saying, "I'm putting all this. I'm putting all this in this book, so you don't have to live through all that." I'm telling you about all of this ahead of time so you can put on the brakes in your life and say, wow, I really do believe that you're God and I know there's nothing I can do to come to you. So I acknowledge my sinfulness and I acknowledge that you are the Lord and I want you to take over the rulership of my life. That's what this is all about, guys. Please, don't let your intellectual curiosities be satisfied by coming in and listening to somebody teach a book that a lot of times seems rather difficult for some people to understand. Oh, don't, don't, don't just get the thrill of finding out what it means. Find out what it means to have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what today is all about. So I'm begging you, please, for God's sake and for your own sake, please do not walk out of here today as if nothing ever happened or that nothing's going to happen. Because it will. And I believe that God has brought some of you folks here today to just be a, a stop sign in your life to say, hey, Lord, what about all this? Are you ready? With our heads bowed. And if you're here this morning and you would today like to talk to somebody about what it means to know Jesus Christ or how to receive Him into your life, our service is going to be concluded here in just uh, just a matter of a, a, a minute or two. And everybody's going to stand up. Everybody's going to walk out the back. You see, God brought some of you guys into this room today because He wanted to change your life. He wanted to save you. You know, uh, something happened to me. It's been quite a few years ago now. In fact, it's, it's been 26 years ago. I was sitting in a room just like this one. And a guy was up in front, and he was preaching out of that book. And you know, it was the weirdest thing in the world to me. I was hearing a man preach, but while he was preaching, God was preaching to my heart. And I'm telling you, it was so apparent to me that the God of the universe brought me to that room on that day for that reason, to hear a message that he was wanting to get into my head and into my heart. And some of you guys, you know what I'm talking about right now, because you've listened to me preach 
But while you were listening to me, God was doing something in your heart. And um, today, if God was speaking to your heart, rather than getting up and turning this off and walking out the back doors, our pastors are going to be up on the, the front side of this room. If you're a lady, they'll get a lady to, to talk with you. If you're a man, one of them, or they'll get a man to talk with you. If you're a young person, it doesn't matter who you are today, if God is at work in your life and God's speaking to you, please do not, do not turn him off today. The Bible says today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. You know, and again, please don't, don't turn God off today. The Bible says that no man comes to him unless the Father draws. And today, if God was talking to your heart, you know what that was? It was God drawing you. And when God's drawing, that's when you better respond. And so, Lord, I want to ask you now that you would take your word. I pray you would just flush all of man's words. And I'd pray that you would take your word to the hearts of people here today that need to be saved. And I pray that you would work the miracle of salvation in the lives of people in this room today before it's eternally too late. And as we pray every, every week, we pray that we won't become numb to all of this and that all of these things and that the awful tribulation that our family members and co-workers and neighbors and friends and acquaintances are going to go through in the very few coming years. I pray that this would just create an urgency in us to get the message out to them before it's too late. But Lord, please save the lost in this room today. Glorify yourself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.